Paul McLaughlin. McLaughlin at work with a great show today. I know, because I was there interviewing. You can't make this stuff up. McLaughlin at work, our first book title, Your Brain at Work. No relation. David Rock, the author and a student on the business side of the neuroscience revolution. He talks about, and he explains at the top of the book, know your brain, transform your performance, your brain at work, strategies for overcoming distraction, regaining focus, and working smarter all day long. Kind of a a dry title for a book that explains, truly explains, your brain at work. A little bit of science. In other words, it's, it's sound. It has some neuroscience elements to it. It talks about the brain in, in a clinical sense, but shows, more importantly, how it affects decision-making and told in such a way as to make it understandable, credible, and allows you to take action. It affected me that way, i got to tell you. The next day, I did things differently after I read the book. And then when I met David, I acted even more differently. There you go. Everybody can learn. If I can learn, you can learn. The second book, awesomely simple. John Spence with Essential Business Strategies for Turning Ideas into Action. John is a consultant. He's a voracious reader, he says, and I believe him. And he has taken his experience and what experts have said and put that concoction together in a way as to make business, as he said, turning ideas into action. They both talk about improving performance. They look at it a different way. And they're both compelling. Compelling stories back to back. Your brain at work. David Rock, awesomely simple, John Spence, Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at work, all about management, leadership, and employment. You can't beat it. Listen up. Here we go. We're exploring the brain with David Rock today. Frankly, his book is of less interest to me than how he's going to tell me my brain works. That's the title of his book, Your Brain at Work, Strategies for Overcoming Distraction, Regaining Focus, and Working Smarter All Day Long. David Rock, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. Um, As I said when I first met you, I found the book intimidating. It's much more personal than a business book, and you reflected on the fact that it's uh, personally written. Well, it's, it, it's not the story of my life, but it's the story of many people's inner life. And um, it's an inner life that often doesn't get talked about. Um, it's, kind of, it's the story of the, the train of thoughts that actually tend to go through our heads. And uh, as, as we try to do difficult things like, you know, focus or collaborate with others. And, you know, I kind of wanted to tell the truth about what goes on. So it's, it's sort of a scary book to read, but it's also, I, I think, very, um, uh, I, I think it's very uh, re- relieving in the sense that you get to see uh, you know what you could do differently in all these different situations to actually succeed as well. So it's it's kind of it, it, it's about one strain of thought, but also a possible different train of thought too. Consistent with a couple of other books that we have had the pleasure of talking about here on McLaughlin at Work, Martin Lindstrom and Biology, and 
Chaz Jacobs on Management Rewired. Mm. Uh, Some good books. Both of whom are, uh, as you are, not physicians, but have explored the brain. It's refreshing to see science brought to reality, and that seems to be a hallmark of some of these quasi-brain books. So I say quasi-business-related, so that there's a there's a, a scientific basis, as you point out in your book, but also an application that's that's a very real, and very down to earth, and very domestic. Well, I think you know if if you're in the in the field of leadership development or training, um, or you know learning and development, then then essentially what you're trying to do is, or, or even in organizational development, you know if you're an OD consultant or a change consultant of any sort, you, what you what you're essentially trying to do is help people rewire their brain. You know whether you know that or even believe me or not. You know you you're literally trying to help people rewire their brain, and uh, it turns out to be really useful to, if you can understand a bit about how the brain gets rewired and how the brain basically functions, um, because it it gives people a greater sense of certainty about what you're doing and why you're doing it. And any kind of change brings so much uncertainty that anything you can do that 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 you know makes people feel more certain about a change process is is going to be really helpful. There are a lot of themes here, and I'm going to jump around, um, as is our want. I noticed in the back, when you talked in a chapter called Encore, you kind of summarized the book in, in, in some part. And uh, when you use the term rewired, and I think there was a term self-awareness in, in, in the Encore section, rewired sort of gives a sense that we have control over. Um, and in, in, in this particular case, with the studies of the brain, do we have control to change, or is it an understanding of the way we are that allows us then to work within those constraints? You know, we, we would love to have control. We have very little control. <laughs> control would feel much more certain, and control and a sense of autonomy is a big driver of reward for the brain. You know, we'd love to have it, but we don't. Um, what we have is more influence than we realize, um, both, both over our own brain and over other people's brain. And we definitely don't have control. You know, just, just try not to think something when you're you know, anxious and you'll see how little control you have. Uh, but we do have this large amount of influence and it turns out you can rewire your brain but it also takes effort. It's a bit like saying, you know, do we have control over our body shape and size? Well, not really, but we have a lot of influence but that's going to take effort. It's going to take, you know, managing your diet, exercising. Yeah, you can have a huge influence over your body shape and size. Um, in the same way, you can have a huge influence over your brain structure. Um, and in a similar way, it's, it's just going to take some effort and it takes some self-discipline, but it, it very much is, it is within our capacity to rewire our brain in, in many, many different ways. In this book, you use, um, it's a story book. You have, unfortunately, a fellow named Paul who reminds me a lot of me. <laughs> Sorry about um, that. And a woman named Emily. Yep. And Paul and Emily um, try your various theses in, in their lives through their book. Why did you pick this method of telling the story? Oh, well, it's a pretty, pretty simple answer to that, Paul. I, I um, actually wrote the book about five times over and threw it out, getting to over 50,000 words each time, because I, I, was, I couldn't find a way to write this that was actually compelling and sort of easy on the brain. Um, I mean, th the reality is I'm clearly a masochist because I, I took the most complex thing in the known universe, the brain, and tried to make it um, actually compelling and interesting to, to learn about. And I was very, very committed to not publishing this until I had something that, you know, truly was going to be compelling for people to read. Um, you know, my last book has done pretty well, Quiet Leadership. It's in seven or eight languages. It's, you know, it's done reasonably well. But, but I, I didn't write that for the reader. I kind of wrote that for the person who is really looking to, to understand, uh, almost like for the person already converted. 
So, so I, I just basically wrote the book over and over and, until I found a structure that actually worked. And, and what I settled on was um, seeing people's train of thought go wrong and seeing what happens when, when, when that happens. You know, so seeing people's brain basically mess up and then explaining the science of, in that particular situation and then seeing what happens in their brain and in life when they make different choices. And the differences are only in a fraction of a second, but the, the outcomes are often enormously different. And in the book, you see, you know, the characters making, you know, millions of dollars of difference in, 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 in you know, in the end. But the, um, uh, without giving away the story, the, the, the reality is that, um, you know... Well, we you can give away the story as a teaser here, <laughs> David. You, well, moving, moving people, and, and, I, and I mean this in all sincerity. You know, we're here talking about something. Your product is a book, um, but it is allowing you to discuss that book that, in fact, will give people a little bit more substance than the written word. Because what you're talking about here, and I think you used the term, uh, is conversation in some measure, is part of this method of dealing with the brain, an important part. Yeah, well, I mean, what, what, I, what I understand about the brain is we have very short attention span, and there are some things that are much easier to digest than others. And definitely a story is immensely easier on the brain. Um, you know, stories get our attention, stories keep our attention with a lot less effort than, than data and, and also, you know, data and other things. So, so it's really written as a story in that way. But the, the structure of the book is kind of interesting. The, there's um, the first part is about decision-making and problem-solving. The second part is about staying cool under pressure. The third part is about collaborating with others. And the fourth part is about facilitating change. And, and each of these four parts, which are written as acts, each of these four acts contains a whole lot of different challenges that the two characters go through. And the things like having too many emails and you know, being overloaded with information, um, you know, trying to do a pitch and, and, and freezing up because you, you have a, a sudden anxiety uh, you know, go through your head, um, arguing with others, you know, political arguments with your colleagues and peers and, you know, the, all, all the kind of things that go on every day. And you basically see the characters messing up in, and then you hear from the neuroscientists that I interviewed. There's about 30 I interviewed for the book. These neuroscientists explain what's going on in the character's brain. And then you see the characters doing a take two where they actually tackle the same situation the way they should do based on understanding their brain. And you see the difference between those two. And that's kind of the structure, the, the flow of the you know, of the book throughout. And it was, it was hugely difficult to come to that structure. As I said, I sort of wrote the book five times over to, to get to that. But what I found is that it sort of leaves people seeing what's possible when they understand their brain, rather than just understanding it, actually seeing it. One would think that somebody uh, who is Australian by background, and the way you sound, I guess you, you still stay there a lot, <laughs> Um, married with uh, two children, you are a professor at a business school in in Italy, and you share your time and the education of your children between New York and Sydney. One might think that that in and its in and of itself would create enough instability to put you <laughs> to, to put you personally at risk with your book. You know, uh, I do have a, a, a slightly uh, crazy life, and I I also teach at Oxford University and uh, a couple of times a year, and I spend a lot of time in Asia. Um, but my, my consulting firm is in 15 countries, and, and I don't get to all of them every year, but I do get around. Um, I'm, I'm one of those people who likes quite a lot of uh, novelty, um, and, and, and I understand through, through many of the interviews I did for the book, um, my brain type a little bit better. I'm one of those people who actually needs quite a lot of novelty to be stimulated, so I've got... Um, uh, there's an inverted U of performance, and some people need to have a lot of arousal to sort of basically even focus. 
and other people... Is, is that the, the dopamine comment? Yeah, absolutely. So Explain dopamine. Well, the dopamine and norepinephrine or brain adrenaline are the two important um, neurotransmitters to understand. And, and, and dopamine um, is very much uh, about being interested in something. It's very much about novelty. Um, it's uh, also connected to movement. You know, you need dopamine li- literally to, to think as, uh, any thought and to physically move. You need a lot of it. But um, dopamine is very much involved in novelty and, and newness and kind of surprises and you know, very important for learning. It's a dynamic thing. You need it and then it's produced when, you know, you, you, you um, are learning something. You know, you need it to learn, but then it's produced when you learn. So, um, and, and, and if I understand it correctly, and I've, I've visited dopamine uh, quite recently, um, it is a... a, a um, it's a release when the brain feels pleasure or something yeah. that it, it likes. It's not. It's not a fear-driven. Maybe dopamine comes out. It's definitely very much about rewards. Although rewards, it's, right. it's, it's not released so much when you receive a reward, although you do get it. It's received in large measure when you're expecting a reward. Right. So if so, you see a food, for instance. Yeah. Absolutely. If you if you just look at a piece of food, uh, you know you'll tend to get a rise in dopamine. If you expect any kind of reward, uh, you'll tend to get a rise in dopamine. So it's very much about the drug of desire and interest. It's kind of being interested in. There are other neurochemistries that you'll tend to get when you receive a reward, like serotonin or oxytocin, if it's a physical human reward. Or, But you'll still get some dopamine there. So um, the dopamine is really important. And, and some people have um, a brain structure where they need a lot of dopamine to focus. And other people, they will actually focus um, at much lower levels of dopamine. And is, is it somewhat like sleep? Some some people need more sleep than others. De- you know, definitely. So, some people need a lot less than others. And I was horrified to discover a study a couple of years back where about fifteen percent of people um, can actually survive and be completely cognitively perfect on about four or five hours of sleep a night and no cognitive impairment. And I just wish I was one of those people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I do. I do too. Not, I do too. Although you suffer from that long flight from Sydney. To Sydney oh, to New I see. York. you might think it's a suffer. Actually, uh, I look forward to it every time. I get so much done. It's uh, remarkable. Uh, right. Um, you talk about emails and, and, and the uh, avalanche of information, and emails is, I think, this sort of a Pavlovian response that you click onto your BlackBerry or you open your computer and it's there and, and you know where to go to get it. Um, and, and reading an article in, in just in the Wall Street Journal this last week saying that emails are now considered too slow, and so things like Twitter and Facebook, which are more immediate, have in some measure taken the place of emails. Emails are more ignored. Um, address the, the, um, the, the release of this whole social networking phenomena as, as how the brain, which is, which is uh, <laughs> given the fact that we just found, what was it, Arby, who was the new, the new Cro-Magnon man back a, a few million yep. miles more. It, it, this, this information, which does have an impact on one's work output, is clearly, for your children and for mine, it's an assault which our generation, yours and mine, did not have when we were yep. growing up. Well, you know, there's, there's a wonderful opportunity and there's some terrible challenges with the social media. And, you know, I've spent some time at Facebook's headquarters and understanding what they're doing and talking to some of their people. And it's, you know, remarkable, uh, <coughs> excuse me, that one in four people on the internet, full stop, you know, is on Facebook, you know, has a Facebook site. I mean, that's ridiculous. Um, Clearly, there's some you know human need that's happening. R- ridiculous when you in in what regard? It's incredible. I mean, that yes. some you know that one website, um, you know, captures the captures imagination. Captures one in four people, right. you know, and it has has gone there. You know, something is, it, remarkable is happening. 
And you know, when you dive into um, the, the 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 social neuroscience, especially, you start to you start to think of the brain as the social communication structure, or the social interaction structure of the human being. And many many of the brain's functions do start to look like they are there to basically drive our social behaviour. And there's one quote in the book, which is uh, from Matt Lieberman, which is you know four out of five functions uh, in your brain when you're not focused on something like something proactive. If you're not focused on something proactive, four out of five functions that, that become active, let's call that default circuitry, involve thinking about yourself and, and thinking about other people. And so the brain is, is immensely social. And so you've got this little bit of a problem. It, it's, it's almost like the capacity of a computer and what we're actually doing on it at any time. The brain is time. social. It's like the brain it is, is just a social interaction machine. And, and what these sites are doing is kind of feeding that machine what it wants. Now, it's a little bit of a challenge. I don't know if you've, no, you've noticed this, Paul, but you notice like a slight obesity problem in uh, the Western world. Um, I've heard about it. I, it's kind of big. It doesn't and, reside in our family. but You uh, know, it's... Uh, <laughs> You know, and it's very, very difficult for a lot of people. But one of the challenges with uh, Western culture, and in particular the U.S., um, is that we we give people what they what they want and don't need, and 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 you know, marketers make it incredibly easy for people to you know to to access you know empty kilojoules, em empty calories in in sugars. You know, everything has sugar. So we we give people what they want, which is essentially just you know carbohydrate, fat, and sugar in huge you know quantities. And then we have this, you know, terrible problem. We're kind of doing a little bit about that with social media. The I, brain I just loves it. I just want to interject that Mayor Bloomberg here in New York is thinking of putting a sugar tax. I saw that. <laughs> you know, so I, we want to keep this topical too to the things they, they, that are they really do, happening. Salt, they're doing a salt experiment, you know, on, on a few million people as right, well, like right. uh, at the moment. But the um, the, the issue is is that. Um, you know, we, we sort of give people what they want, and then and then we've got this huge problem with obesity. The trouble with the social media is is incredibly rewarding for the brain. We love to know who's doing what to whom, and gossip is you know gossip magazines are the things that sell, and they're the things on TV that get the high ratings. And you know, I mean, look at what's on Twitter, and it's gossip, 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 especially celebrities. So we love that stuff. That's candy for the brain, candy in the true sense of the word. You know, empty kilojoules. Now, at the same time. You can use that as a positive, um, but it's 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 becoming very very difficult for people to you know not spend a lot of time in there because it's just so mentally rewarding. But and it is always there. It's always there. It's immediate. Anytime you feel a little bit of low energy, you know you can just go there, get some extra stimulation. Um, but you know I think many many people are spending many many hours there, um, and 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 it's not necessarily all that useful. I mean, it, it certainly can be, and it has its. It, I'm not saying social media is bad. It's not. It's a double-edged sword. It has some, you know, great positives, and it has some challenges. And I think that we're nowhere near uh, at the point of knowing how to use it properly. No, and I think that th that's where the technology comes in. But stay with the point here for a second. When you talk about uh, people's uh, interconnection, well, I think one of the points you make in your in your book, and I could not do it justice because it, it was almost too frightening to open that part <laughs> of the box. Uh, but you did talk about conversation. And, and we, we are getting stimulus uh, in social networking far different from another way of getting, uh, of, of getting that interaction, which is the book club or, uh, or the congregation in church. What is the impact of the brain on, on getting, on, on really in your brain thinking about your networking as opposed to actually talking to somebody? 
it's an interesting question. I mean, there's a there's a little bit of a challenge with the, some of the social media, and it, it activates a thing called the seeking uh, circuitry, where you you're basically always looking for more. And uh, there was a nice piece in I think it was in Slate magazine recently about this um, about the social media is activating this kind of seeking mechanism, where you just want that next hit, that next hit, that next hit, and <clears throat> it's not. Excuse me. It's not essentially. Uh, a, it's not necessarily a good thing, you know, to activate that circuitry because it's it's similar to the kind of you know press a lever on cocaine to keep getting it kind of circuitry. It's mm-hmm. it's it's sort of a manic nature to it. So I think, you know, I think that we're. Uh, I probably haven't answered your question well, but I think that we we we're going to need to learn how to use this stuff and not have it. Um, you know, mess with our heads too much. But in, in terms of sort of activating a social network in your brain. Um, I don't know. No one's really thought about that, you know, compared to a real social network. What I, what I do know is that attention changes the brain, and anything that you do repetitively sets up patterns very quickly. It happens in seconds. Right. It sets up expectations and patterns, and you know, uh, we had the the internet down last weekend for two days, and you know, it changed our whole patterns of doing everything, you know, in, in for two days, and then it was sort of harder to get back into it. Um, so anything you do repetitively does change your patterns, and it, you know, it it may have people having real conversations less, or it may push people to want to have real conversations more. We don't know, but we, you know, we, we, we definitely need to find more of a balance with it. These, uh, and, and I should m- make sure that I don't uh, just run over the fact that I'm speaking to David Rock. And a little, a little horse, because your book is, is uh, new out, yeah, um, and so you've been doing the host of uh, the round of things that one does with one new book, and we want to be uh, uh, just give your website associated with it so that we can do the the promotional here for David Rock and his book, Your Brain at Work, and then I want to get back to the the substance of what you wrote about. Absolutely, yeah, Your Brain at Work. There's a website which is yourbrainatwork.com, but there's a dash between each word, so your yeah. dash brain dash, and uh, so it's like McLaughlin at Work, there you which go. is the name of the program. There yeah. you go. So your your brain at work with a dash, and there's also davidrock.net, um, as it sounds, davidrock.net, and uh, that's about my work m- more broadly as well. So um, there's a couple of sites. My the work that I do with the uh, Neuro Leadership Institute. I founded an institute, and we run a summit and produce research and do postgraduate education. That's neuroleadership.org. Then my commercial site working with large organizations is resultscoaches.com, resultscoaches.com. So there's a few different resources there. A, a, a couple of different resources. Thank you. Um, and Paul McLaughlin here with McLaughlin at Work uh, about management, leadership, and employment. And this seems to sort of have all things uh, together. And I'm going to address the issue of leadership and, and expertise uh, with a couple of thoughts. One is um, you know, Gladwell didn't uh, define it, but there's been a lot of work around expertise requires 10 years of doing a repetitive yeah. thing or 10,000 hours. Uh, my daughter is a, uh, is a ballerina uh, of some significance, and I can attest to the fact of that 10 years and 10,000 hours as being. How does, the, how does the brain, let me put it this way, do you have to focus on something in order to be very good at it? You definitely need to focus. I mean, you... Um, we've, we've seen studies of neuroplasticity where people can you know, lift their arm after having a stroke. And if they're not actually focusing and paying attention to it, they're not really going to get much change. But if they actually focus their attention, um, you get, that's where you get the circuitry development. And they've tried this <coughs> with some really tricky experiments that were somewhat ethically uh, gray but with monkeys and other things. And we see that 
that you, you actually have to focus attention to, um, you know, literally your attention. You have to focus your attention to create um, connections or embed connections in the brain. It doesn't And we've happen. actually seen that uh, recently in amputees <coughs> from the war where they, they're, they're fit with orthotic, a new kind of device, yeah. uh, an extension that actually works when the brain thinks about doing it. Yeah. Yeah, when you focus your attention, you activate circuits. Um, if you focus your attention, if you close your mind, don't move a muscle, but focus your attention on your foot, um, just you know, think about your foot, you will activate the region of your motor cortex about in the middle of your, your brain, you'll activate the region for you know, moving your foot. And if you did that long and hard enough, you'll actually develop the muscles in your foot a little bit um, and uh, you'll develop your ability to move it, even though all you're doing is focusing. So you know, we, we, we know that focusing attention um, definitely creates change in the brain and it happens really, really quickly. But we also know that focusing attention is hard. Um, attention flits around constantly. And so uh, it's much easier to focus attention in a conversation with someone else um, where the circuits you activate are kind of richer and more intense because you're speaking about them, not just thinking about them. And so it's easier to focus in and a conversation with someone. at the same and time in a conversation. And, and, and so you're, you're being maniacally, it, 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 it's that one eye that's going. And yeah. you may have other things in the back of your mind, and that's sometimes when you drift off. Yeah, but you're much more focused, and you'll bring yourself back because you don't want to drift off in front of someone else. They'll think you're being rude. So, um, so it, it's really helpful to, to, to you know, focus on things with other people. It seems to be uh, a way of increasing what's called attention density, which is the, the time you spend and the amount of effort involved. Um, take that to business and your, and your coaching. How has this, and this is uh, two questions. One is the science on this and the, and the scientists you've talked to, um, there's a new kind of um, MRI, MRI that they go into the brain and actually measure this. So a lot of what you're talking about here and, and your discussions with the neuroscientists are actual physical views inside the brain that we've only had for the last two or three years, or maybe more. The four MRI a little bit longer, but um, there, there are some newer technologies. That, I mean, the, the biggest breakthroughs have been um, in, in about the last seven years in terms of applying fMRI and EEG to social situations. Um, certainly the, the biggest breakthrough is in terms of understanding the business world anyway. Right. Um, the, you know, and I, I founded a field called neuroleadership, and in that area we draw on a number of different labs uh, and different scientists, and these labs are studying social situations and how they... Uh, you know, how the brain functions in different social situations. So, you know, for example, we know that fairness, you know, a sense of fairness with another person can activate a reward circuitry more than a financial windfall. That, you know, fairness is a very important right. quality to human beings. And a sense of unfairness um, can activate a very strong threat response, like, this, like, like a sense of someone trying to hit you um, and the fear involved in that. You know, a sense of unfairness activates, you know, very strong disgust response as if tasting really bad food in the insula. Um, and activates a you know, strong threat. So, so in about the last seven years, we've seen a field called social cognitive and effective neuroscience. And that, that's been a, a big, um, there's been some big breakthroughs in understanding the sort of social issues like, uh, like fairness and autonomy and status and uh, the whole attitudes reward mechanism for the reward. Yeah, absolutely. To do and, and, and many other things. But there's also been big breakthroughs in, in our understanding of how innovation happens in the brain and how we get stuck on the wrong ideas. Um, so the whole field of insight and, and the moment of the aha, uh, you know, that's, that's another area that's really interesting. Also, the study of mindfulness and that, the, the field of self-awareness, that is another field that, you know, that's really studying mindfulness that's very, very interesting. Is, is EI part of this? 
Well, EI, you know, emotional intelligence is, is not really a term that neuroscientists will talk about. Right, um, okay, because it's an emotion. Well, it's not so much, I mean, there's no problem with emotions. I mean, they'll, they'll just call them, you know, affects, um, <laughs> but, but still emotions. But it's not, it's not so much that. It's in, in, um, in neuroscience, they'll tend to study uh, 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 certainly like the relationship between, say, the limbic response and cognitive responses. And the limbic response is more of an emotional response, and they'll tend to explore what that kind of automatic biological response is um, compared to others. I emotions are just thought of in a different way, and they study things like um, uh, the timing involved in emotions and, and, and the fact that emotions are very automatic, um, that they, are, they, they, they you know, operate very quickly. Uh, but the field that's more interesting, I think, is called emotional regulation. And I'm probably going to do a post on this uh, shortly about sort of it's time to put emotional intelligence to bed and, and actually focus on emotional regulation because emotional regulation is about how you actually, you know, manage and regulate It's like biofeedback as In opposed to being uh, an awareness of it, the ability to change it. Well, it's, it, yeah, emotional regulation is, 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 a, is a field of study that neuroscientists are studying and psychologists. And they're, they're trying to understand what techniques work and what don't work and why do they work and how do you do them better and, you know, coming up with some interesting findings. So it's very much about how do you actually, you know, keep your emotions managed <coughs> so that you are as adaptive as possible. And there are times it's great to have emotions and use them. You know, if you're angry and you need to get something difficult done, that anger might help you. Um, most of the time, the negative emotions like anger and anxiety work against our, you know, our, our goals, and they're non-adaptive. So the, the emotional regulation is a really interesting field of study, and um, it, that, that's the term that's generally used more so than, uh, than emotional regulation, uh, intelligence here. Yeah. Um, the, the, um, the notion of the old dog uh, learning a new trick, what's the effect of age on the brain? We can learn anything till any age, pretty much. We just become less interested in it. And if we don't learn much for a while and we become stagnant, we have you know lower dopamine levels. It's harder to be interested. You know, dopamine and interest are linked. Um, so they say you know keep learning completely new things as we get older to maintain those dopamine levels, maintain that ability to be interested in things. Right. Um, we can learn. There are people who learn new languages in their 90s and past 100. We we can definitely do it. We tend to lose the will and the desire and the interest in doing it, and I think that's something to work on maintaining. It, it, speaking of language, there's long been the thought here in, in the United States where we don't have a lot of languages, if you will, the same place, uh, same way as other parts of the world that said it's difficult after a certain age to really be able to learn a language because you're, either your mind isn't open to it or you've got to get rid of other things. True or false? Oh, no, it's absolutely true. There's, um, we, have we have a certain amount of plasticity through, through our lifetime, but there are definitely windows of increased plasticity. And there's, there's no question there's some intense plasticity periods you know, early on, like in the first 18 months or so. They say that if you, if you don't hear a certain language before about 18 months, you'll never uh, pronounce the phonemes quite perfectly um, mm. because you won't have the circuitry for the actual sounds in your brain. And... Uh, uh, there's, you know, there's the period of about six or seven, and you know, people who move to another country with two children, three years apart, will find one child speaking fluently and another not, um, just three years apart. So there are wi there are windows of plasticity, but uh, we know you can change your brain. We also know it takes effort. Um, but I, I think the, um, uh, the the question becomes sort of how do, you know how should we be changing our brain and what what is it that we need to do as as business people and managers to to be more effective and i think one of the answers is just to become more is is to pay more attention to our actual attention i think one of the the that self awareness thing well i don't like the word self awareness it sounds soft and fluffy it's it's uh, you can call it meta awareness mm -hmm. um 
it, it, it's, it's basically thinking about your thinking. Many people just get on every train of thought that comes along and you find yourself in the wrong station, you know. It's, it's really about learning to think about your thinking. Now, you can't think about your thinking if your brain is hyperactive and you have too much emotional, not emotional, too much electrical activity. There's no space on your, what I call your stage to, to, to actually think about your thinking. Um, but one of the big takeaways from the book, and I think for, for people who are successful, is to, is to be reflectful, re- reflective, to be able to not just get on every train of thought, but think about what your objectives are and to be operating at multiple levels and thinking about your thinking, not just kind of jumping on everything. And I think that's, that is a skill that we know you can get better at. Uh, it's been tested and, you know, we, we see that people have significant improvements uh, in, you know, 100 minutes of training over a week um, compared to control studies and it, it you know, it, it's something that's very, very learnable and, and you can definitely have become part of your life. It's totally secular. It's nothing to do with meditation or religion or anything like that. It's just simply this capacity to, to stop and think about your thinking. And as you develop that muscle, you become you know, far more effective in, in your decision-making and emotional regulation and collaboration and everything. And uh, as a close, and I'm speaking and concluding with David Rock, the book is Your Brain at Work, Strategies for Overcoming Distraction, Regaining Focus, and Working Smarter All Day Long. In your coaching work, uh, do you find that leadership of corporates, uh, uh, of corporations, are they buying this, and are they are they are they taking it to heart the same way they may deal with the um, uh, the physical aspects you know, of the workplace? There's no question that leadership skills are under pressure, and I, I saw a, a paper from Brazil recently that said they have 33% of the leaders that they need, and you know there's a, a study by Sherm, Human Resource Management, that said that you know leadership development was the second most urgent thing to improve um, worldwide. There's, you know, we really need to do better at leadership development. And currently what we have is this kind of hit and miss approach and we need to bring more science to it. And leaders are very, very interested in that. And this book, Your Brain at Work with David Rock, will be uh, one of the first steps along that road. Absolutely. Thanks David, very thanks much. very much for being with me. Thank you very much. That's David Rock. You read the book. You won't think about your brain again the same way. As a matter of fact, you know what you will do? You'll think about your brain. And when you start thinking about it and you match up what Rock says about your brain and what you know of your actions that are brain-related, hello, which ones are those? You will know your brain, transform your performance. And now we go to phase two. Second part. Awesomely simple. Essential business strategies for turning ideas into action. This is a matchmaker. Your brain, keep it simple. My guest is John Spence. And uh, John, I'm going to let you speak for yourself. What is Awesomely Simple all about? Awesomely Simple is uh, years and years of research, hundreds of companies trying to get down to the fundamental key strategies that drive highly successful companies. I presume if you've got the full range of expertise that you've dealt with companies that were difficult to manage and some may even have come a cropper in the last couple of years. Um, I would say, it's a great question, I'd say that about 30% of the work I do is with companies that are on the edge of bankruptcy, that are, that are failing, that are struggling. Um, and I get that call that says, John, you know, we've got three months of cash left or we're in serious trouble or we just lost our largest client. We really need help. And what's been fascinating is when I've looked, and I've kind of built my entire career around looking for patterns. 
in, in the beginning of your book, yeah. you, you described the four steps. Maybe you could just go through those briefly before you get to the pattern recognition in your career. Be happy to. Um, when, I, when I looked at what it takes to become world-class at anything, years ago, one of my clients asked me to come in and do a presentation on the, on the fundamentals of excellence. And one of the things I realized was the pattern recognition part. And so in, in researching that, I read a book called The Cambridge Handbook on Expertise and Expert Performance which was basically a 900-page book written by experts about how to become an expert. But here's what they said. There's, there's really four things that lead to becoming truly world-class at anything. Uh, the first thing is passion. You will never become truly great at anything unless you're deeply passionate about it. Unless you're having fun, you enjoy it, it you know, it involves you, it overwhelms you, much like you with your work, Paul. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know you're very passionate about what you do. Uh, the second one is persistence. Uh, to become really, really great at something, is what they call the 10-year or the 10,000-hour rule. You're going to have to spend 10 years focused on it, working on it, and what the third B is practice. I saw practice. the 10,000-hour uh, rule. Malcolm Gladwell had that in, in Outliers. Uh, in outliers exactly. Yep, same thing. And, and what in this book, the Cambridge book, said they called it the 10-year rule. Okay. And during that 10 years, and, and here, here's really what differentiate, differentiates someone who does something for 10 years and someone who becomes expert is, Every day they practice, but every day they make it the practice a little bit harder, a little bit more challenging, a little bit more difficult with coaches and mentors and associates and colleagues that are constantly pushing them. So you're passionate about a topic, you're persistent for 10 years, you practice every day and you make that practice more difficult, more challenging day in and day out. And then the fourth B comes, which is pattern recognition. And at the end of that 10 years and those, that 10,000 hours of practice, you begin to see patterns emerge that other people don't see because of the time and the focus you've spent on the subject. This is like a chess grandmaster that can see way down board, or uh, you know, a, a great athlete like a Tiger Woods or a tennis player that understands where the game is going before the game is even halfway there. Uh, the, the best example, and it's in the book, is it's how Wayne Gretzky used to skate to where the puck was going to be instead of where the puck was, because he knew what was going on two or three steps down. So when you look at someone who's truly world-class at something, they're passionate about it, they've spent years practicing, the practices has been very focused and very challenging, and eventually they get to the point where they can see patterns. And that's what I've built my career around is looking for patterns in business. What do you do about somebody or something, an entity or even an industry that has a pattern of failure? Um, and that's, to me, the way to, to shock them out of that pattern is, is two things. Is first of all, to have the, the people in the organization admit, and I use audits and tests and surveys, Admit clearly, we're not where we need to be. Because I feel as a consultant, the last thing I need to do is come in and tell somebody what to do. But if I can get them to tell themselves, hey, John, you know, I looked at your 11 audits here, and on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being world class and 1 being absolutely horrific, we have an average score of 2.3. They look in the mirror, and they look at you and realize we have to change. Uh, and then the other thing for me is to expose them to the broadest amount of information and let them choose what they feel will work best for them. Uh, it's one of the foundations of strategic thinking uh, is you have to have a broad exposure to a wide number of ideas and information and then compare it with your personal experience. When you look at the two, back up and look for the pattern, and the pattern is where you have a strategic insight, where you get what the French call Kudoy, and you go, ah, now, based on my 20 years of experience and all this information I've been exposed to in this council and these ideas in this study, I now see something that no one else sees that's where great strategy is built. So when you've got an, an industry that's struggling, first thing is they have to admit it. I have to admit we, we need to change. What we're doing is not working. And then number two, I believe you need to give them enough good, solid, 
you know, really fantastic information that's proven and allow them to pick the two or three things that they feel strongly that if we commit to this, we're going to be able to change the way we do business. What is it about your book, Awesomely Simple, your presentation, the likes of which you just gave, and your own persona as uh, John Spence that makes people um, want you to help them? A, a, a good question, a, a somewhat humbling question. I, I think it's two or three things. One well, is, you can't is, be too humble <laughs> to sell what you sell. Well, I, I'm very, very confident in the information I'm gathered. I am not confident that I could walk in and tell someone what to do. And I think that's one of the things that okay. differentiates me is I've tried to build, and it's all throughout the book, questions, discussion items, audits, surveys, that once you take them and you look for the pattern, it becomes extremely clear where your company is strong and where your company is weak. And that's not someone from the outside telling you. That's you and your team looking at this stuff, scoring it together, discussing it, and then looking up and going, uh-oh, we have a problem. So I think step one is I make it very clear, make it very easy for people to clearly identify from their own point of view where they have issues and problems so they admit we need to change. Uh, number two, I, I mentioned it earlier, is I'm a voracious collector of information. I've, my client list is a little over 300 companies over the last 15 years, top of Fortune 502, high-tech startups, the entire realm. And I've been reading at least a minimum of 100 business books a year every year since 1989. But here's the key thing is the reading is useless if you can't also combine it with real life experience. Right. You know, I, I had six years as a CEO of a multinational company. Um, I've worked on dozens and dozens, dozens of senior management teams of large companies, small companies, making huge business decisions side by side with a CEO. So yes, I study a tremendous amount, but then I spend an awful lot of time actually having to sign paychecks, help companies make payroll, making strategic decisions in the real world where there are hundreds or thousands of jobs and millions or billions of dollars on the line. Where do companies get it right and where do they get it wrong most often? Culture. Quick answer, huh? Um, to me, when you, when you build an organization based on a culture of values, of integrity, and it's a culture that attracts, keeps, and grows highly talented people, a culture of transparency, honesty, courageous communication, that's a kind of organization that regardless of what happens in the marketplace, they've got talented people that tell the truth with high integrity, with open communications, and a kind of culture where great people want to continue to go to work. Why do people repeat their mistakes? Well, that's a, a very challenging and, and great question. I think one of the reasons that people repeat mistakes is they're not students of history. They don't realize that they're doing the same thing that 20 other companies in front of them or other countries. I, I'm right now in the middle of reading um, Churchill's Alone, uh, the last line about how we entered into World War II. And I, I sit and read this and go, I can't believe that this is the same thing that happened before and has happened since and again and again. So I think one of the reasons you see companies repeating problems that drive them into failure is they're very insular. They're not looking outside of their industry. They don't even look outside of their company very much. So some of these glaring problems that are, that are obviously an issue, they think that's just the way business has always been done. And because they haven't looked around much, they don't realize that it's driving other companies into the ground. How do you, how do you take away the, the tease out the threads of intelligent mistakes to find out what's right about the process and then where it went wrong to teach people about looking at history effectively? One of, well, again, you're asking incredibly challenging questions today. This is fantastic. One of the things that when I look at uh, a World War II with Churchill or what we've gone on, we're going on with Afghanistan or politics in general, 
And it's one of the things that I think led us to the debacle on Wall Street. You and I are sitting in New York today doing this interview and I look around us. I think it's part of the idea of enlightened self-interest, that there isn't such a thing, that many people do what is in their own best interest with, irregardless of what, how it will impact other people. And, and I think, personally, when you look at the political machine, that there are many people that, that do not make intelligent decisions. They make biased decisions for what is best for them to get reelected, for their constituency, for whatever it might be. I see the same thing in business. People making decisions, not what is best for the company, what is best for the employees, what is best for their customers or clients, but it was best strictly for the individual. And um, when you get into any system where that's ingrained, where that's been around for 10, 20, 30 years, and people have a lot at stake, a legacy industry, General Motors, where people have a tremendous amount at stake to maintain the status quo for themselves, I think you see people making decisions that can have very negative ramifications for other people throughout the ripple effect. And they, unfortunately, I believe that they just don't care at this point. Some of them don't care. And I think that's what we're seeing a little bit in the government with Obama coming in and realizing that there's a machine there that does not want to change because the people that are running the machine have an awful lot at stake. I'm speaking with John Spence. The title of his book is Awesomely Simple. Paul McLaughlin here with McLaughlin at work and calling your attention to Classroom 24-7, a sponsor for McLaughlin at work. And if you have web issues, web-related learning issues, particularly those that require some certification, you might give them a click-through on Classroom 24-7. Uh, they offer an awesomely simple way to get certification for your people uh, online. When I think about corporate America, two questions emerge with specific to John Spence and being awesomely simple. Is there a greater realization today that people can't work their own way out of their problems? And secondly, do you find that what has happened to the fabric of corporate America, winners and losers over the last year, will that have an impact on corporate, corporate America? Wow, two uh, incredibly challenging questions. So let's go back to the first. When we looked at do people need, why can't they work their, themselves out of their own problems? Correct, correct. Uh, I think it's, it's that they're so incredibly busy, they're so incredibly focused, the pace is so fast that many people don't have time to step back and really look at the big picture. Uh, it's a cliche, but I think it's true. So many people are so busy working in their business, they don't have time to work, step back and work on their business. So a big part of this is taking what you learn and what you read and what you study and what you get from people like me or Jim Collins or Tom Peters, and then taking your real life experience with your customers in your marketplace, with your competitors, and saying, based on the real stuff I'm doing every day, out of all this information, here's the three or four things that I'm gonna steal and apply. They're gonna get me days, weeks, months ahead of the time I would have to do to figure this out on my own. Corporate America. Corporate America. What has it learned, mm -hmm. and will it learn from 2008? It's gonna learn uh, that flexibility and agility with communication and collaboration is critical. Things move so fast, your number one uh, asset is bright, talented people on your team, and realize that really creative, highly innovative people who are dedicated to continuous improvement are the number one driver of keeping them in business. People haven't changed. 
or have they? Has this been, had a fundamental effect on the American business psyche? Here's what I'm seeing. Uh, I'm seeing people that realize that corporations no longer offer lifetime employment, they offer employability, that companies, just by the nature of the marketplace, cannot be as loyal to employees as employees might hope, um, that there's a lot of fear and anxiety out there about keeping my job and moving up in corporate America. So I, I see a pushback almost in an opposite direction. Um, in some of the sessions I lead for companies, I ask employees today, what's the number one thing you look for in a leader you would willingly follow? Um, if you look at the work of Kuzas and Posner and Leadership Challenge, what it used to be is four key things they look for in a leader. Uh, a uh, Honesty was number one, 89% of the people worldwide said, first thing I want is a leader that tells me the truth. Number two was forward-looking, in, in other words, visionary. Number three was competent, and number four was inspiring. So I want someone who will tell me the truth, who has a clear idea where we're going, who has the skills to get me there successfully, and is excited about going with me. And Kuzas and Posner's use the word credibility to basically do it. The word I hear now over and over again, class after class, is respect. I want a leader that will respect me, that will listen to my voice, that treats me fairly. What's the number two or three top key things that a global leader of the future needs? And you know, I was expecting vision, you know, being able to deliver results, drive, things like that. What I got was humility, integrity, ethics, collaboration, flexibility. With the people I'm leading today, the old way of doing business, telling them what to do, forcing them, command and control, theory X, whatever that was, it's not working with this group anymore. It's not working in this atmosphere. It's not working with these employees. Egolessness, humility, almost what Greenleaf would call servant leadership. If you look at Bill George with his true north, I mean, there's, this is the sort of stuff that says leaders today have to be more collaborators and have to treat their people with more respect and humility. Let's shift gears and talk about generational differences. How is the current crop coming out of uh, schools and their first learning experience, what do they bring that's different in the, with the backdrop of what you're saying is the new economy? I, um, well, it's interesting because in a lot of the firms I work with, I work with the senior executives, but then I work a lot with new entry-level employees, mid-level managers, so I get a real exposure to the, to the full spectrum of the, of the workforce. And the folks that are coming out of school now or in the last four, five, six years, they're the ones that are driving that respect idea that, you know, if you want me to come in here and give 110% of my discretionary effort, a couple of things. A, you must respect me. B, I will only respect you if you're competent and you treat me with respect. I don't care if you've been here 20 years. I don't care what your title is. I don't care about your seniority. The only thing I care about is can I see that you're competent and do you treat me fairly? If you give me those two things, they're incredibly loyal. But if you try to say, you know, I'm the CEO or the COO, you have to do it because I've been here for 35 years, they, give, they have zero loyalty for that. Uh, the other thing that's interesting is they are coming, and I'm, I'm, I'm painting a really broad brush here of, the, of generalities, but they came basically from a background of constant reinforcement, constant praise. Um, you know, everybody who enters the, the contest gets a ribbon or a trophy, whether you won, lose, draw, or just showed up for the day. But they come to the, to the workforce with the mentality of always being patted on the back, always being praised and getting that a lot, which is one of the reasons that building a culture that really attracts top talent is a culture that gives everyone some sort of honest, sincere, genuine praise once every seven days. You know, and it doesn't have to be from the boss, it be from anyone on the team, but people in the organization, I, and I think the younger generation needs it even more than once every seven days. The other thing that I find fascinating is 
they've got a, a unique perspective. They understand that in their lifetime, they will probably have between five and seven careers, not jobs, completely different careers. Well, what I see now is, is the, the reason the retention rate is lower is be, because they don't have enough spots in the top to move, constantly be moving people up to the levels they expect to get to. So what I see a lot of companies doing is identifying the best of the best, the, the ones they do want to retain, and spending exorbitantly on them, sending them to a lot of classes, taking care of them, and knowing that the rest of them are pretty much going to churn every 26 to 30, you know, 35 months. What does that say about the middle workforce? It, to me, and, and it's, a, it's a bold question, the middle workforce is the folks that have decided, and this is absolutely great, that life balance, uh, involvement in their community, their kids, whatever it might be, is more important than climbing the corporate ladder, that as long as they get paid a fair wage and they work in a culture that is embracing, respects them, treats them fairly, they enjoy their work, it's fairly challenging, that work for them is just someplace they go, and then they go home and, they, and the real passion that they have in their lives is their children or their community or their hobby or their, their religious out, outlet, whatever it might be. And you know, when you look at sort of social studies stuff of social styles, that's normally about 67% of an organization is the glue that holds them together of the folks that just say, The hey, workforce. The workforce. I, I don't want to be CEO. I don't want to be a senior vice president. Because to be a vice president in a Fortune 100 company and hold that kind of a title, you give up the rest of your life to a large degree. That you, you trade in life balance for jumping on the corporate jet, flying around in helicopters, and making billion dollar decisions, and getting paid accordingly. Um, at that level, there isn't much life balance. Awesomely simple. The book, Essential Business Strategies for Turning Ideas into Action. Focus on that last word, action. How many companies would you say effectively execute their plan? Companies that know how to compete in the marketplace, understand how to differentiate themselves, they have a good strategic plan. What percentage of them effectively executes that plan? And the answer I've gotten for the last five years straight is 10 to 15%. So the idea behind the book is, and I'm going to be real clear about this, you're not going to read anything outlandishly new in this book. I mean, I'm not revolutionizing the way business is done. Actually, it's the reverse. I'm saying cut through all the clutter. Here's six things that if you really focus on these intensely, these will create a foundation of sustainable success. And they're nothing new. I mean, some people have accused them of being truisms. And I will agree with that. But here's what the whole thrust behind the book is. If they're truisms, then you have to live them, not just talk about them. So there's a constant thrust on every page in the book to say, here's a great idea. How do you make it part of the way you do business every day? How do you create disciplined execution around this? So you know, we know that talent is critical. We know that customer focus is essential. Do we have the processes, the systems, the procedures, the checklists in place to ensure that we're not executing at 10 to 15 percent, but we're executing at 75 to 85 percent? Because executing on those fundamentals consistently, day in and day out, is what differentiates a mediocre company from a truly world-class company and one that can sustain success because they're not just talking about it, they're living it. And they're making it happen. Right, day in and day out. John Spence, Awesomely Simple, Essential Business Strategies for Turning Ideas into Action. With Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at Work. John, thanks very much for joining me. My pleasure, my honor, Paul. My thanks to David Rock, your brain at work. My brain hurts right now, believe me. And I don't care how awesomely simple John Spence makes it to telling message. Both working in tandem, a brace of books. And my brain needs a bracing after all this. Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at Work. 
Thank you so much for listening. Till next time.